You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Hey, uh, let's begin with this distinction between the who and the how in this scene. And I want to start with the how. How do you know when you are asking the wrong question in your life? Uh, This text gives me an occasion to share with you four diagnostics. I see them in the text, but in all honesty, I have to tell you, I see them in my life. I consider myself a little bit of an expert in these four diagnostics. And the first one is exhaustion. We see that in verse 48, these disciples are straining at the oars. Uh, That could be translated, the oars were beating them up. It's not... Anything wrong with rowing, but you know you've got a problem when it's not so much that you're moving the oar, but the oar is moving you. And you're just getting tired. When you feel exhausted, there's no better time than to ask yourself, am I asking the right question in my circumstances? You might just be asking the who question. The second diagnostic of asking the wrong question is awake at night. We're told that Jesus comes to them early in the morning. Mark tells us literally that's the fourth watch that begins at 3 a.m. and ends at 6 a.m. How many of you find yourself up in the fourth watch? I know I do. Awake at night, having eaten the anxious bread of toil the day before, anticipating the same diet on the next day, I just can't sleep. And it's interesting how exhaustion and awake at night oftentimes come together. And when they do, you know the problem isn't rest. You know, it's something else. Asking the wrong question. The third diagnostic we find here, I call isolation. I get this from this place where it says he intended to pass them by. Now, one of the interesting things about the Gospel of Mark is Mark wasn't actually there. Tradition tells us that Peter dictates to Mark the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark and Peter were both at Rome at one point in time, and presumably Mark transcribes Peter's preaching and puts it into what we call the Gospel of Mark. And if you take this story and you put it, 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 swap out the third-person pronouns, the he's, and, and, and put in the first-person pronoun, I, you have a very vivid first-hand account of what happened that night. And it may very well be that from the perspective of the disciples who were in that storm, who were in that boat, in the midst of the darkness, when they saw some figure walking on the water, it looked to them like he intended to pass them by. And I wonder how often the people in your life look to you just that same way. Like they don't have time for you. Like they don't have concern for you. You're just some stiff pulling on an oar and they really don't have... Any interest in being with you? How is it that our lives can be so filled with people and yet we can feel so abandoned? Isolation. Sometimes it's not that people have abandoned us. It's that we look into ourselves and we're so ashamed of who we are or who we are not that we voluntarily isolate ourselves, that we hide. Isolation. Another sign that we may be asking the how question. Exhaustion, awake at night, isolation. And the final diagnostic that I see here is fear. Verse 50 tells us when they saw Jesus, they were terrified. 
And you can forgive them for being afraid. They're looking over the gunnels in a blustery, chaotic storm, and they see someone walking on the water. That would be terrifying. They, they, they must know to themselves, there, no one's walking on the water. Yes, there is. There's something there. What is it? It must be a ghost. I have no idea. They have no cognitive space for what's happening, what Jesus is doing before their eyes in this moment. And they just begin to play out all the scenarios. Well, I, I don't know what this could be. In the same way that you and I, when we're in the storms of our own lives, when the night is dark, we play out all these scenarios. There are infinite number of ways this situation could crash and burn, aren't there? <laughs> One more dire than the next, and we just flip through that slideshow. Fear. How will I find the strength? When I'm exhausted, how will I face the day when I lie awake on my bed? How will I find someone who's willing to care for me when I feel all alone? How will I survive yet another crisis? See, the problem with all these questions isn't just the how word, but it's the I word. It's I, I, I. And Bonhoeffer points out that when you and I and get caught in this cycle of how questions, we inevitably the whole thing will collapse back on ourselves. But Jesus, Jesus here raises the who question. As he often does, he changes the subject. He doesn't spend any time with technique on rowing or headwinds. He goes right to the who question. In verse 50, we see that. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. It's me. Can you see me? He says to them out there on the water. And they're not so sure. No, <laughs> we see a ghost. See, Mark wants you to know the very problem that they're facing is a problem of not being able to identify Jesus in the midst of the storm. Jesus has to insist, it's I. That's the quotation. That's the center of this passage. Jesus is the center of our lives and the center of human history. And the key is to be able to, to see that. In him. It's complicated. Not because Jesus is complicated, but because the context of our lives is so very complicated. We know that people don't walk on the water. We know that uh, you don't ordinarily see a Savior in the midst of a storm. When I was uh, in college, I uh, faced a storm, and it was a small storm, but it felt very big to me, and they always do. I uh, had great ambitions um, in athletics, which is surprising, I know. Go ahead and laugh. But I, I at the time, I rode uh, on the crew, which is a sport you can do even if you're not athletic at all, but just stubborn, which is, so it was perfect for me. And um, I took it very seriously. I, 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 by college, I had competed internationally. Actually, I'm somewhat embarrassed to tell you this, had, I wanted to row in the Olympics. And one of the guys in my boat ended up getting a silver medal in the Olympics. Um, and so I worked very, very hard until I overworked and my ambition got the better of me. And um, I ended up going through uh, five surgical operations, one after the next, hoping to get back in the boat, back in the game. And I never did. And it was, for me, devastating. But now that I look back on it, the wonderful thing about that is I could realize, even though I did that to myself, in every moment, Jesus was there. 
That was the point of deepest spiritual growth in my life to date. It was in the storm that Jesus was saying, George, it's me. I couldn't recognize him. It looked to me just like chaos and brokenness. I couldn't see him. But now looking back, I could, I could, I could see so clearly. Jesus was calling himself to me. He was there walking beside me, walking within my moccasins, God incarnate. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, he's complicated. It's, you know, really hard to get your head around this question. The story told of Karl Barth, a fellow professor, an astronomer one day, as they were talking, asked him a question. He said, you know, uh, I'm an astronomer. And as far as I'm concerned, the whole of Christianity can be summed up by saying, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. To which Professor Bart replied, well, I'm just a humble theologian. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, the whole of astronomy can be summed up by saying, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. <laughs> Give me a break, he says. <laughs> Give us some credit here. This is a hard question, who is Jesus? It's complicated. Virgin birth, what? And, and, and the followers of Jesus, the people who knew him in the first century, they themselves report the complexity of the question. Because here's the thing. Jesus does stuff that humans just don't do. Changes water into wine. He heals people. He knows their thoughts. He brings back the dead. He resurrects himself. Humans don't do that. But so we must, he must be God. On the other hand, Jesus also does things that God doesn't do. And everybody knows God doesn't do these things. God doesn't get tired and sleep. God doesn't get thirsty or hungry, eat or drink. God doesn't get tempted. God doesn't bleed. And God never dies. Who is this Jesus? In the 5th century, A.D. 451, the followers of Jesus, multi-ethnic from around the Mediterranean basin, gathered together around the who question. They gathered in 451 in a place called Chalcedon for what we now refer to as the Fourth Ecumenical Council, Worldwide Congress. And they gathered there for three weeks, 400 bishops, probably 630 people all together to study the scriptures and to ask the question, who is Jesus? It's the definitive creed that the church has ever produced on the person of Jesus. It's called the definition of Chalcedon. Two billion people around the world today answer the question, who is Jesus, with the help of the definition of Chalcedon. This is, it gives us the boundaries of orthodoxy. And I want to share with you, not the whole creed, in fact, if you want to read it, which I would encourage you to do this Advent season, uh, go online, Google definition of Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, and read it. It's a paragraph. We're using, by the way, phrases of that for each of the four sermons uh, during Advent as we consider the question, who is Jesus? But I want to give you a summary of the, of the creed. And here's why you're going to need to know this. Over the next uh, three weeks, you're going to go to tons of cocktail parties, Christmas parties, and everything like that. And you'll need something to impress people with. So here it is, okay? So you, you can say, well, I don't know about that, but I do know about the definition of Chalcedon, A.D. 451. And there were really four things that they decided there. Okay, you ready for the four things? Okay, here's, this, here's, my, here's George's summary of the definition of Chalcedon. Jesus Christ is one person. That's one. Fully God, that's two. 
fully human, that's three, in two natures, that's four. This is the definition of Chalcedon. It doesn't take away the mystery, but it shows us where to look for the mystery, points us towards it, inspires our worship. One person, fully God, fully human, two natures. That is how Chalcedon addressed the question, who is Jesus? Sometimes it's referred to as the Chalcedonian box because you can, you can put those one person, two natures, God and man, on four sides of a box. It's not so complicated, they discovered. He is one person. And the way they articulated that in the definition was with the words, one and the same son. You see those in your bulletin. Jesus is one and the same son. Because there are those who came there who said, surely there must be a son of God and there must be a son of man. A son of God and a son of David. And if there are those two sons, they're, they're two persons. They have kind of a, a um, multiple personality disordered Jesus. And somehow they said, we don't understand it, but there's just one Jesus. It's really simple. He's just one person. And in the words of the, uh, the Gospel of Mark, it's this simple. When Jesus says, it is I. It is I. He's saying, I, I'm the guy that you know. I'm the man that you know. Remember, we've been walking together these years. Remember, we just walked together uh, during the multiplication of the loaves. It's me. It's Jesus. You know my voice. You know me. I'm just like you. When he says it's I, he's saying, I'm like you. And when he says it is I, he's also saying, I'm your God. I'm the man you know, and I'm the God you need. Let's go back to the text just for a moment when he says in verse 50, take heart, it is I. The original readers would have heard three things in there that you and I are tempted to miss. The first thing is in Mark's Greek that it is I, it's just two words, ego, eimi, which means I am. If you know your Old Testament, those words have significance. When Moses, at the burning bush, asked the voice of God, Who are you? His answer was, I am. I am. The self-disclosure of God in those two words. Jesus uses them when he walks in the storm. Uh, the second thing is, when he, Mark tells us that he intended to pass by, there may be an allusion again to Moses, who was up on Mount Sinai, hidden in the cliff of the rock, cleft of the rock, when the Lord's presence, quote, passed by him. And as he did, he proclaimed that name, I am who I am, rich in compassion and steadfast love. And when Jesus comes walking on the water, he does what only God does. God, who had rescued his people Israel by carrying them through the Red Sea, now walks, in the words of Job, trampling upon the waves of the sea. Job asks, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? God alone. And so Jesus, when he says, it is I, he says, I am one person, but I am human like you, and I am divine like your Redeemer. Simplicity. God tells you, in your storm, in Jesus, I walk with you, and you walk with me. I want you to think about your own storm Think about what this might mean to you, whatever you face today. There's hope in this truth, one and the same Son. The first bit of hope I want to share, too, is that in our deepest crisis, Jesus is our hope. 
in our deepest crisis, that crisis where we know ourselves to be infinitely separated from God. We know the brokenness and the rebellion in our hearts, and we have no way of fixing that problem, no way of finding union between us and God apart from Jesus Christ. But in him we do. Listen to Karl Barth. This is a little bit thick, so you'll have to follow me here. Karl Barth writes this. In Jesus Christ, there is no isolation of man from God or of God from man. Rather, in him, we encounter the history, the dialogue in which God and man meet together and are together. The reality of a covenant mutually contracted, preserved, and fulfilled by them, God and man. Jesus is in his one person as true God, man's loyal partner, and as true man, God's loyal partner. You see what he's saying? I think I can see to the heart of the gospel in Jesus Christ, one person. I see there that he is God offering life through these covenant stipulations. But I also see that he is humanity perfectly obeying those covenant stipulations so that in Jesus we have the union of God and man. We have our union with our God in him. Jesus is hope for our deepest crisis, but he's also hope for whatever crisis we face today, our current crisis. And I want to reflect on that by reading a poem, which um, Polly uh, Yorioka, one of our staff members, shared with me this week. It's just beautiful. It's Ephraim of Syria. That's the poet. He writes even before Chalcedon in the 4th century. Listen to his sense of what this baby does to his own life. He says, this is the month that bears utterly all joys, for slaves, liberation, for the free, pride, for doors, garlanding, for bodies, dainties, and purple garments it showers in its love as if for a king. This is the month that bears entirely all victories. It frees the spirit. It subdues the body. It brings for life among mortals. Divinity, it showers in its love upon humanity. In this month, slaves recline upon rugs. The free recline upon carpets. The kings recline upon tapestries. In a manger, the Lord of the universe reclined for the sake of the universe. Behold, O Bethlehem, David the king comes, clothes himself in fine white linen. The Lord of David and son of David hid his glory in swaddling clothes. His swaddling clothes gave a robe of glory to human beings. God walks in your moccasins. And you know what Peter intuitively sensed? That when God walks in my moccasins, I can walk in his. Peter is too modest to let Mark print that part of the story in his gospel. But Matthew was there, and Matthew tells us how Peter responds once he hears Jesus identify himself. When Jesus answers the who question, it is I, Peter. Peter says, well, if it is you, then you call me out of the boat, onto the water. He dares to believe that in the midst of a terrifying storm, if he knows who Jesus is, then he can walk on the waves. He can walk in God's moccasins. And so can you when you and I answer the right question in our lives. You might be in a raging storm this morning. In some sense, we seem to be as a culture. We've got behind us what they call Superstorm, ironically named Sandy. 
and ahead of us what they're calling a fiscal cliff. So we're all in a storm. But you may have something more personal than that, something that exhausts you or keeps you awake, something that makes you feel all alone or something that terrifies you. Whatever it is, I want you to know that in the midst of it, your Savior, Jesus Christ, even if you can't see him or hear his voice anywhere other than in the scriptures, is saying to you this morning, take heart. It's I. I am here. I am with you. I am for you. I am within you. It's me. I want to invite you to a few moments of meditation just quietly. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen here, a painting of this scene. But I want you to own it. I want you to think about your own storm. And hear this question Jesus asks you. Let him ask you directly. Who do you say in this storm? Who do you say I am? Let him call you to new faith this morning. And then, secondly, I want you to ask him a question. Dare to ask Jesus this question. Jesus, where are you in my storm today? And let him speak back to you his word of assurance. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.